not unbiblical not to live that way. And the reason is because the other churches in Jerusalem, or sorry, the other churches in the book of Acts, they don't do it this way. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, we'll see that all of the churches that Paul plants, they're taking up offerings to bring them back at the end of the book of Acts. They're bringing their offerings back to the church at Jerusalem. Why? Because the church at Jerusalem is being crushed by the weight of this family. The church at Jerusalem is being crushed by the grinding poverty that characterized Jerusalem. This was a unique moment. It was a unique point in time. The rest of the churches that are mentioned throughout uh, Acts never practice this lifestyle, but what they all practice is generosity. So when I'm reading this text, my conclusion, and maybe you'd have a different one, and, and that's okay, I can respect that. Um, my conclusion is I don't think that we are being mandated to sell all our stuff and live together communally. So I'm an anti-capitalist creed here, okay? Although neither does the Bible pop up capitalism either. I'm not trying to wade into those waters at the moment. Um, but what the Bible is mandating us to do in this text is to practice radical generosity. Every single church in Acts at least does that. They give, and they give, and they give. They give until it hurts. Most American Christians don't really have a concept of that because um, our idea of generosity for many of us is, well, you know, I won't get that $5 latte at Starbucks so that I can do something nice. And then we feel like we're suffering because we didn't get the $5 latte. Um, I don't think that's really sacrifice. Um, I don't think that is really generosity. So what we see is the early church practicing the rhythms of generosity. Giving and giving and giving and sacrificing for one another. We've seen this on display in this congregation. We've even seen it lately. My family has experienced it lately as many of you have been generous to us. We are humble and grateful for that. Um, I have seen you guys sharing everything from cars to apples to um, uh, empty rooms, people becoming roommates and, and, uh, and living together um, because they have a need and choosing to sacrifice. And what I think the book of Acts is calling us to do is to continue. You see, my Christianity cannot be limited to the religious rites and rituals that take place for an hour and a half on a Sunday. Jesus breaks out of that. He blows up that paradigm and he says, no, you practice generosity seven days a week. And that's what he's calling us to do. But then Luke gives the counterexample. The one that really attracts our attention. We kind of gloss over Barnabas to get to Ananias and Sapphira. Because Ananias and Sapphira, holy cow, they drop dead in the middle of church. But Luke wants us to read them together. He wants us to read about Barnabas giving generously Ananias and Sapphira are, according to Peter, resisting the Holy Spirit of God. Interestingly, this is one way that we know that the Holy Spirit is God. Because he says you have lied to the Holy Spirit, and then later he says you have lied to God. He equates the Holy Spirit with God. Now, again, I think it's important to note here, what is the sin that Ananias and Sapphira commit? It's not that when they sell their field, when they sell their property that they don't bring 
and put it in the offering plate. No, that's not the sin. In fact, Peter said uh, in verse 4, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? So why didn't you plant this thing in your heart? You could have kept the money. You could have kept 50%. You could have kept it all. Nobody was making you do it. Why have you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people but to God. The issue is not how generous Ananias and Sapphira were being. Although certainly they weren't being as generous as Barnabas. The issue is a lack of response of holiness to the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is calling. The Holy Spirit is trying to fashion a people. And Ananias and Sapphira say no. They're like, we, we want the uh, prestige that comes from being a member of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. We want, uh, we want people to think well of us. So we'll go through the motions. We'll do the rites and the rituals on Sunday, Saturday, or whatever day we meet. And we'll do communion, and we'll sing, and we'll, we'll be devoted to the Apostles' Doctrine. But there are areas of our life that are off limits to the Holy Spirit of God. We will not pursue holiness in every square inch of our lives. There are some areas of life that are not. That's the issue. What Ananias and Sapphira really want is religion, the way it's defined in the modern world. They want something that is contained in the four walls of a church building for a couple hours on Sunday. And really, that's the kind of Christianity that a lot of people want. Something that inoculates us. I get my dose of Jesus, kind of like the, the flu shot, right? You get a little bit of flu so that you don't get a whole lot of flu. And a lot of people think of church like that. I'll give me a little Jesus inoculation on Sunday so that I don't have to really follow Jesus the rest of the week. That's Ananias and Sapphira. How much do I have to do to faithfully follow Jesus? That's their question. Or maybe worded it the negative way. What's the least amount I have to do to be considered a faithful follower of Jesus. And so they're having this conversation. Hey babe, do you think we ought to give 50%? 60%? 40%? I mean, they'll never know. Because we just, we'll say it's 100%. What do you feel like we can get away with? That's the question. What can we get away with? What can we hold back from the Holy Spirit of God? What part of our lives can we draw a red line in the sand and say, no Holy Spirit, you don't get to come into this room. No, Holy Spirit, this is off limits. Because Ananias and Sapphira, like us, we long for our freedom. Over the last two weeks, I read a fantastic book uh, by James K. A. Smith. It's called On the Road to St. Augustine. And... Um, he talks about how Augustine, who Woodley taught about in our church history class last week, um, he was this uh, fourth century African pastor, lived 1600 years ago in northern Africa, one of the most influential theologians in church history. And how Augustine pursued freedom. I think Woodley even talked about how Augustine's mother, named Monica, 
was a Christian, wanted Augustine to pursue Christianity. Now, Augustine's mother was African. Augustine's father was a Greek Roman. And Augustine was concerned that Christianity was too African. He didn't want part of that. He wanted the respectability of the philosophy and the oratory of the Greco-Roman world. And so he literally, under the cover of night, leaves northern Africa to sneak to Rome so that his mother won't pursue him, so that his mother won't come after him. She does, though. She, she gets on a boat and she travels to Rome and then to Milan to track him down and to keep pursuing him and inviting him to come to Jesus, which he eventually does. But Augustine, when he writes his famous book, Confessions, he talks about how he longed for freedom. And Smith, in his book On the Road with St. Augustine, he says, freedom looks like the top down. Hair whipping brazenly in the wind, refusing to be constrained. This is what freedom looks like. He says, when you've been eaten up by your own freedom and realize the loss of guardrails only meant ending up in the ditch, you start to wonder whether freedom is all it's cracked up to be. On the far side of such freedom, sometimes a long way down the road is regret. The shadow cast by this kind of freedom can be very dark. This is what Smith says about Augustine's quest for freedom. What Augustine says in his book Confessions is, My heart is restless until it rests in me. Augustine wanted the freedom freedom from his mother, freedom from Africa, freedom from the God of his mother. And so he goes off on this quest that takes him to Rome and then to Milan. Eventually it takes him back to be a pastor in Africa because his heart is restless until it rests in God. And Ananias and Sapphira want that same freedom that Augustine wanted. It's the same freedom that you and I want. We, we, we all like those movies, those road trip movies. And it's like, there's two people, maybe it's a, uh, two people in love, maybe it's a bunch of dudes and they're like, you know, going on this journey. Or maybe it's like a bucket list thing and it's Morgan Freeman and a bunch of old guys and they're all, they're all on this quest, they're all on this journey, right? And we like these stories, we like these movies, we like these quests and people feel liberated, they feel free. But they don't recognize that their freedom is actually slavery. And Ananias and Sapphira are desperate for that freedom. Let's hold something back from the Holy Spirit of God. Let's draw lines around certain rooms of our life, certain corners of our life, and let's try to keep our Christianity bottled up on Sunday because that's freedom. Not realizing what Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Maybe you feel like you are like Ananias and Sapphira. There's a certain part of your life that you just won't give to God. A certain part of your life that is off limits to the Holy Spirit. It could be money. That was part of the problem for them. But I think it was far broader than that. They just refused to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They looked at the Holy Spirit and they said no. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit's going to strike any of us down if we say no to him. Could. I'm not going to make that threat. It's not my name. But he did hear. And he didn't hear 
in part to produce a certain effect in the church and in the broader community. I think verse 11 um, almost seems comical to me. There's a, there's a great irony and an understatement of verse 11. Look at, look at verse 11 with me. After Ananias and Sapphira have both been carted out, Luke just kind of wryly remarks, then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. You think? You think? If two people drop dead in one of our service, and like Woodley's up here in the middle of preaching, and he's like, yeah, so they're dead because they disobeyed the Holy Spirit. Patrick and Brandon, can you take them out? There would be a tremendous sense of fear right here. And then as the bodies start going out on the street, and people are like, wait, why are their bodies coming out of the Black Lady Theater? And we're like, well, they disobeyed God. And word starts going up and down, no street. Somebody calls the police. The police come. They're like, what's going on here? Well, they disobeyed God. It would produce a tremendous amount of consternation, confusion, and maybe some fear. And that is the point. You see, in the previous chapter, the attack upon the church had been from the outside. It was the authorities trying to lock them up. And as we finish chapter 5 next week, we'll see they circle back around again and the authorities try to attack the Christians and lock them up again. But this attack comes from within. It comes from people who are trying to pursue their own vision of religion rather than a relationship with the risen king of the universe who wants it all. And since he is the risen king of the universe, he actually deserves it. But maybe you feel like you're like Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe you feel like you're Augustine before he surrendered in Milan, before he came back to Jesus. And you are just, you're on your road trip. You're on your quest. You're pursuing freedom at all costs. And you're like, how do I, how do I get back to God? I, I used to be closer to him. And now I'm not. I, I used to have this deeper relationship with him. And now I don't. I want to get back to that. Well, I'm going to go with the wise words of Winnie the Pooh. Who said, I always get to where I'm going by walking away from where I've been. I always get to where I'm going by walking away from where I've been. Sometimes we're so entrapped in our sin, we feel like we don't know how to get out. I feel like that's probably how Ananias and Sapphira felt. They had they had spun this web of lies. They were so much in it, they couldn't figure out a way to get out. I think Winnie the Pooh would say, well, I get from here to there by leaving where I've been to go over there. Sounds simplistic. Sometimes what we need is not really that complicated. The Holy Spirit is over there. He's calling us to holiness. He's calling us to embrace this total vision of Christianity that covers every square inch of life. And so he says, leave where you've been. Become this way. And when we do, when we see the church living this way, when we see the church taking sin in its ranks seriously, it produces the sense of fear and awe in the broader community. People see 
that our God is real. Because everything about the church is about bearing witness to Jesus. And so even in the way that we deal with sin, especially sin that's in us, it's easy to preach against the world, it's easy to, it's easy to preach about corrupt politicians, but what about us, right? When we look in the mirror, when we see our sin and then we deal with it together to help one another grow, that is what produces this certain sense of awe and wonder amongst our neighbors. That's what Luke wants us to learn from this passage. Generosity and holiness both come coursing through this text. And I think both of them are on display in a, uh, a letter that I want to close with, a letter to a guy named Diognetus. It's like an 18, 1700-year-old letter um, from a guy who's trying to explain what's unique about Christianity to someone who didn't know. And if you listen carefully, I think you'll note that the writer talks about both generosity and holiness, both of these two things that we've been talking about in this text. He said, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, Christians marry and have children, but they don't expose them. Exposure was when early Romans would take their infants and expose them to the elements to kill them. He said, the Christians, they don't do that. They're, they're, they're like the Romans, except they don't do that. And then he says, he ends with this, they share their meals, but not their wives. They're a countercultural community. Because back then, people slept around, they shared their wives, but they didn't share their food. The letter to Diognetus says, yeah, here's what sets them apart. They, they, they dress just like other Romans, they speak the same languages, they pay their taxes, they're civically involved, they do all of that stuff, but there's some things that set them apart. Two things in particular, generosity and holiness. Generosity with their meals, holiness with their sexual ethic, like same things that we're seeing here. Generosity and holiness coursing through the church. The Holy Spirit, I believe, is here today, just like he was back then. And he's still fashioning a people who will bear witness to Jesus in word and deed. And so what we have to ask ourselves as we leave this place is, are we allowing the Spirit to shape us into the kind of people who bear witness to Jesus in every scrimmage? Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would convict us, challenge us to embrace your truth and to submit to the Lordship of your Son, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing.
Und Konsens.